Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 22 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. The first time I heard about today's guest was several years ago. And looking back, I remember reading about him before I heard about him from others. And when I heard about him from others, most of them pronounced his surname differently. And what happened next was something that has happened to me many times before. I take note that the trainer exists, and if I don't have the time to investigate further at the time, I'll leave it at that. For now. Until the trainer surfaces again. Either in my mind for some reason, in my social media feed, or through conversation with other riders. And then I'm able to take a second look. But on rare occasions, someone I really respect insists that this is a trainer I must investigate further. And that is what happened here. So I did a bit of research, got very curious based on what I saw, and then I attended two clinics. And this interview is what grew out of it. When it comes to riding and spending time with horses, many of us have different styles, we wear different costumes, and we might have very different goals and ambitions. So when you look at the horse world as a whole, it can feel quite divided at times. And it's easy to forget that the root of our dream is shared by us all. The dream of being unified with a horse. One of the challenges with assessing different trainers and different kinds of horsework is that we often tend to say thank you but no thank you if a trainer offers something that we do not recognize or feel familiarized with at first glance. In short, we often fail to look beyond what meets the eye. The embroidered shirt and the cowboy hat. The white riding breeches, the shining black riding boots and the elegant jacket. Or the woolen sweater jeans and the dirty boots. Or in this case, the full plate armor accompanied by a sword and a lance. My guest today started his riding career as a part of a show team, recreating historical tournaments. Then he took it a step further, or a leap further to be more precise, as a rider and a curator at the Fürstliche Hofreitschule in Buchenberg, where he was taught how to master the art of riding and the high school movements. And what grew out of it was a historical European martial art practitioner and instructor, specializing in mounted fencing, jousting, archery on horseback, garotcha work, and more, heavily placed in the classical European tradition. And before you press pause or switch to the next podcast thinking that this is not really my cup of tea, ask yourself if your horse will be willing to follow you into battle, and not just carry you on his back, but also have your back, and potentially save your life. For example, your name, Arne, is very Norwegian. Uh, yes, yes, it uh, comes from my Norwegian family. That my parents called me after some far-off uncle, I think. Okay. So yeah. So Norwegian mother. A grandmother. Grandmother. Yeah. Yeah, and but Dutch. I am originally myself Dutch. Yes. Yeah. Right. So uh, and your surname you pronounce Kutz. Kutz. It's a very boring name because <laughs> it means carriage. Carriage. Like a horse carriage. Yeah, but that's that could have been worse. <laughs> I suppose it's completely <laughs> coincidence because I think I'm the only one in the whole family that has anything with horses. So Arno, welcome to this uh, talk. Thank you. And thank you for a very another very interesting uh, weekend. I'm glad you liked it. I really did. And that's why we're having this talk actually because <laughs> I, I find your horsework very interesting. I always like to ask people how it started. Mm-hmm. 
because we have a world full of opportunities, at least when we live in a Western world, and mm. uh, there were so many things you could do. So what made you start uh, training and riding horses? Um, well, the simple answer is I got told. And the, the thing is that I, somebody needed somebody to ride in a joust, and I had armor. And, and joust? That is just like um, knights running at each other with lances, as a, and we did that as a show. And because I had armor, they thought that would be convenient that they had a fourth guy in armor and so thereby I must learn how to ride. And so I was a, a sword fighter. I did some Viking reenactment and then went on to uh, 15th century reenactment, which is more this period where this jousting thing then starts becoming prominent in history. Um, so uh, I was, yeah, I was beating my friends up with swords and that was my, my hobby next to my um, studies and thereby I had some ability with weapons and I had some affinity with the history and I had some equipment and thereby I was an obvious candidate in their mind uh, the fact that I had never even more or less touched a horse by that point almost um, that didn't seem to be much of a problem to them So, and uh, when, when was this? this was 2001 Okay, because a lot of people, I think, also when suggested, you know, if, if somebody suggests you should do this on horseback, would say, no, I'd rather not. But you decided to do it. I remember that my initial reply was, well, it will take me 10 years to learn how to ride even remotely properly. And uh, because I didn't start as a kid. And I went like, ah, oh, you'll be fine. And then, of course, the, I started my regular riding lessons, which weren't necessarily very efficient. Um, and it to, almost to the day, it took me 10 years to start start actually getting to ride in a way that is actually very different and much more appropriate to this kind of activity. So I spent 10 years, well, eight, eight or so years swimming, trying to find something that sort of worked. And I was galloping in straight lines and don't ask how it looks. And I was hitting the targets. I was doing all that stuff. Sure, whatever. But uh, there's nothing to write home about at all. And I knew it. I perhaps didn't know just to what extent it was rubbish. But I kind of knew it was rubbish. And I was always looking for something more to be able to uh, get closer to the to the the reality of the um, of the time. And then I got an opportunity only in 2010. So my first shoulder in, I think I rode in 2010, pretty much. So, and that is that is the start of riding in, to me, a completely different way. Um, when I went to Bückeburg, to the Fürstliche Hofratschule in Bückeburg, so the princely school for riding art in Bückeburg. When I was invited to go there, that was a massive chance for me. So my riding then leveled up quite distinctly. Who invited you? Well, Wolfgang and Christine, so that's the Hofreitmeister and uh, and his wife, came to watch a, a show I did in Denmark. And I was standing there with a group of people that they kind of wanted to invite, and they just invited me as part of that bunch. And I don't think they thought much of it. And uh, they probably also thought that I'd lived further away, and thereby would probably only turn up once and then leave again because it's too expensive. And then, oh, well, we can... We can give him a few lessons and that will be it. But uh, yeah, more or less never left. So that's <laughs> sort of the thing. But it sounds very coincidental. It, it was, absolutely. I mean, it's not that I wasn't looking for something, but it was very hard to find anything that 
even remotely um, would give me what I needed. Especially because at the time I was living in the Netherlands, and uh, this is some years ago, of course, uh, it was very difficult to find tuition of, yeah, whatever you want to call it. I call it historical dressage now because uh, it's just to give it a name, but it's like, I suppose what everybody wants classical to mean, except what we now use the word classical for isn't actually the old version anymore. Um, so I wanted that old version for all sorts of reasons and learned later that there's even more reasons that you want that old version. Um, and that old version was very hard to find. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is this is already 10 years ago as well. So um, you kind of needed then a steed to go to war. <laughs> yes, I, I needed I needed horses to go to war, yeah. And I... And I, I <laughs> When and I when you're going to have a war horse, you also need to be able to ride it properly. Yeah. Yes. And um, what makes a war horse a war horse, especially in this earlier style, when what I wanted to do is this hand-to-hand combat on horseback, lances like we discussed before, but also sword fighting on horseback and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's martial arts. And martial arts, you need to be very precise if you just do your karate or whatever. You need to be very precise in controlling yourself. But once you do this on a horse, you need to control this horse in a very, very precise way. So they, they always talk about uh, timing and distance is the words that you get thrown after you in, in, in martial arts a lot. Um, that you need to control the distance to your opponent to about a centimeter precise. And then you need to start doing that on a horse. But also the moment is extremely small snippet of time that you have to do everything. And uh, it's constant flux. So having that kind of um, requirement is much more what the older riding styles do they need to make you capable of using a lance or a sword or whatever and thereby you need to be very very precise with everything so you kind of need to the horse needs to just put its feet where you just decided to put them you know you don't want to think about anything but the the task at hand and that means that you need to uh, use riding much more like a dance you know when you're dancing the, the music is playing you need to go along with it and that is a very similar thing that you have within mounted fencing or anything like that, that you just need to go with the flow. If you try to fight the music, it will be a terrible dance. And and that is the same that you have in the martial arts. You need to go with the flow. And that means that you need to apply your techniques of your riding and your horse training to match that reality, to match that requirement. And that means that a lot of things that you would otherwise maybe default to are not applicable. Uh, and one of the things you see is it makes you very aware how much pressure gets in the way of that feeling. So uh, punishment, for instance, very quickly you do too much punishing. Very quickly you do too harsh punishing or too often. Um, and and to an, a degree that I think people don't even realize is that it's so early that it starts becoming counterproductive. I think people want to reduce their punishment and the pressure for ethical reasons, but I don't think they realize how much there are practical reasons to punish yet less. And um, this is, I think you get a very different view of that in a practical sense when you start doing that kind of activity and how much you need to rely on your horse having your back and that you need to build that. So in order to get that sort of a... Yeah, centaur feeling is this nice word that everybody likes. But that feeling that, that those feet of the horse are yours, 
Well, it's very similar when you dance. You you feel all four feet. You, you're placing. You want to feel exactly how she has her weight on which corner of her stiletto. You should know that. And um, that level of, of feeling and connection is very necessary. And thereby you need to find a, a system that, that allows you to dance with your horse like that. And um, that is the older system, and that is what I finally found in Bukeburg, where they were. That is, uh, I think, the school that is closest to the oldest versions of of dressage. You said uh, many things. Uh, I would really like you to elaborate on one of them is punishment, because when it came to having a war horse, I think uh, one of the reasons why punishment was a bad idea was that if you fell off during battle, the horse would leave, and you would be dead. So it was really a matter of life and death, death to have that kind of a connection. Um, more or less, um, the when you um, you look at uh, what they actually write in the old masters, especially the ones that specifically touch on the subject of the war horse, um, they mention that you shouldn't punish a horse too much because it will um, it will abandon you when you when when it matters. Now the word abandon then of course is tran translated a little bit here and it's much more that they will just stop listening in the moment supreme and will do that one little thing and you know you're riding into battle everything is fine he's listening to your spurs you're doing far too much but he will run because he's being spurred say you know and then the moment you want to hit your opponent and they're about to hit you that's when the horse suddenly stalls and then you can spur him all day long you will still get killed. Uh, of course, in real warfare of the time. And they were very aware, and they warn you of this quite a few times. So, of course, for very practical reasons, they just wanted the horses to perform. And the performance of the horse wa uh, was dependent on not willy-nilly punishing. And um, thereby, they had a practical reason to reduce the amount of pressure around the punishment and the amount of harsh bits, things. They talk about this in bit books a lot. Uh, in, in very minute detail, uh, that you should use the bit that the horse is most comfortable with exactly for these reasons. Not because they wanted necessarily the horse to be that comfortable, but they wanted the horse to perform. So the performance side is, of course, their motivation. And that is cool for us today. And perform and last as well, to be yes. a long-lasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. horse would be more and more healthy and would last longer, absolutely. However, today we can use those things that they found out in order to just have a nicer time and to have a happier horse under us. And that might be more prominent in our motivation, sure. But the system that allows you to do that is the thing they invented in order to have a reliable war horse that would just perform. And uh, it's, it's, it's a luxury that we can now use that to just make our horses happier and healthier and, and, um, and, and still better anyway. And when you say uh, system... Which system specifically are you talking about? Uh -huh. um, so there, there is a sort of a red, red thread, as you tend to say in most languages, um, of uh, what the old masters kind of write, especially up to about 1850, maybe something like that, uh, up, uh, until Boucher at least. So that's a bit early. But never nineteenth century, and um, this is a very heavily side movement based program, and uh, often involves various elements that we probably are aware with. You know, a bit of in hand work, a bit of 
uh, stuff like that, but very small circular patterns and things like that. So there's these elements that you throw together in a sort of a toolbox and that uh, you use in order to uh, achieve collection relatively early in the training. And then, for instance, from collection come to extension and speed. And that it's very seat-based in terms of how you ride. It is meant to be able to use one-handed or throw your reins away at opportune moments. Um, and that the horse will still perform very precisely. So the, the level of collection and in particular the deliberate action to make the horse connect to your seat is actually mentioned. So they talk about the technique of getting the horse up to your seat so that it unifies with you. It leaves the word unify. That is, in, in Italian, it's, it's really quite a beautiful image to me. And that system is more or less a fundament to many things we see today. So have placing the parts of the horse side to side, well, which style doesn't do that? Well, you have to do it, so of course they will do it. Um, creating a shape in the horse, both in terms of bend, both in terms of, of elevation and outline in the general, um, getting the, the, the hindquarters to do the work. Well, this is a specific type of work that we want out of it, but the work needing to be done by the hind legs. Well, basically every style wants that. So the tools are still very similar. It's just that there's a very specific sort of aesthetic that it was necessary for war that is a very good all-round aesthetic to do other things from. This very sat, very elevated, very round, very soft in the mouth, very soft on your hand contact, and uh, very, very seat-centric. And uh, that's useful for most people. I'm also curious, since you were um, starting with horses because you were told uh, and because you ended up at the school as like sort of an accident, at what point and what happened uh, that really kind of changed the way you looked at horses? When did you feel like a centaur for the first time? Uh, okay, that's two very different questions. So my uh, image of the animals as our colleagues and and uh, and companions and stuff like that. that. That's very gradually changed through all sorts of different little things that happened. So when I was still a very bad rider doing all these jousting shows, what we did do is we traveled a lot with them. So we were internationally traveling and camping, and then you had the horses that were in paddocks just behind your tent. So you already, to some degree, have a, a closeness to the animals on a daily basis in that sense that a lot of people perhaps not not as familiar with or not as familiar with as they think when you when you have a horse inside your tent and lightning strikes the building next to you and then your horse looks at you to to save it you know in this moment where literally it was 10 meters away and th that kind of things were happening all along we, we, were, we were very close to horses in that sense that doesn't mean that we were technically particularly good riders yet but um, that, of course, means that you have all these things that you learn from the animals as just time goes on. Just like, I don't know, a parent will learn from having children and as they grow up. You know, similarly, we what is the one day that you understood your child? Well, the, the, <laughs> there's no one day. It's yeah, but so, yeah, but sometimes there are, you know, those moments of Zen or those magical moments yeah, that yeah. kind of stick with you, you know. Yeah, this is very true. Now, uh, usually it is when there uh, was something really drastic happening and the horse totally went with me to solve the m drastically dangerous situation. One of these things that springs to mind is a parade I did in uh, Spain, which was a bit of a disaster and a very long story. But the horse I was on just totally came to me 
because everything was literally exploding around us and we only had each other. We didn't know each other in really before that, um, but we just totally went through it together. And, uh, but, you know, literally fireworks going off between the feet of your horse and things like that. And then that really is one of those moments where you kind of feel like a horse can be totally with you. And that also you, I learned to have a certain feel of responsibility that I should create the situation that the horse could trust me in a situation like that. And then I had to go and look for the technique to do so. And that took me some time, but it just happened. The horse came to me by its own volition. Uh, so that's that's one of the anecdotes, I would say. Um, but the real feeling of now everything, I just can place everything that happened in Bukeburg. So I think my first canter pirouette probably is the one that springs to mind when I really stood, started, you know, placing each foot and knowing where the hoof is pointing. You know, where y you have this 3D image, you know, in real time, like da-da-dum, da-da-dum, I'm placing every foot there. And, uh, yeah, not long after that, we did a pas de deux. And I, this was a, a pas de deux, which was based on a, on a song that was popular in Germany at the time. And uh, one of the props was a, a cell phone. And my, uh, my partner uh, in, the, in the dance, uh, she was supposed to flick her cell phone shut with, the, like, the, 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 the thing, the protector around it. <laughs> and in, in doing so, the actual cell phone flicked out of this uh, shielding thing and flew into the middle of the arena. But the music was playing, we were riding. So we had to do a canter pirouette with the two horses around this phone and not step on it. And uh, this is one of these things that we did that and then had it removed before the next uh, scene. But we, we rode the whole pas de deux, but we had to adjust in the flow that we didn't actually trample the phone in the whole thing, make it look effortless. And then we, we were inches away, but deliberately could make sure that we didn't step on that phone uh, without anybody noticing. And, and stuff like that, that started happening within a few years all of a sudden after I got to Bukeburg. And so then you go from, from having that feeling to teaching that feeling. Yes. So don't tell me that you were told to do so. Well, sort of. <laughs> sort of I was. <laughs> it's, it, again, I was I was not really thinking I was anywhere in a position to teach writing. Now, this is partly because I was teaching martial arts from a relatively young age, and I was doing this um, this European sword fighting uh, in various uh, versions of that. I did that for for years, and I taught a lot of people together with my friends. And um, so I was teaching movement and, and you, you learn after a while that you kind of really need to know that movement rather well before you can teach it to somebody. And so when people started talking about, oh, wouldn't you be a writing teacher? You kind of go, oh, I don't even necessarily think I quite know the movements the way I would be expected to know the movements as a martial arts teacher. And then there's also the process of building one thing to another. Do I have an overview of how the whole process of the training of the horse goes to the end? Even if I haven't reached that yet, I need to know what the goal is. You know, there's many roads that lead to Rome, but when you reach one of those roads, are you going to go the right direction? You still want to know where Rome is. And uh, you could go on the, the correct road in the wrong direction. It's very doable. I, I didn't feel that I had that overview at all when I was quite forcibly made to teach and uh, then it turned out that I could give more answers than I thought 
and uh, it was round about the same time that I finally got to the point that I taught my first horse to be off and things like that. So I was starting to get a few little badges of honor, if you will, or things that people get hung up on, and I was hung up on. Uh, you know, you tick some boxes, but it does give you some overview of where one thing leads to another. And that developed as I started teaching. What I find interesting when I watch you teach is, which is something that really is like an acid test for me when it comes to teachers. Um, you teach the novice and the very experienced rider the same way. So there's not like you feel that you deserve better if you have like a novice rider who doesn't really know much. You just give give them your all, which I think is is what uh, what a really good teacher does. I do find it more difficult when somebody's more novice, but that's my problem, not theirs. Of course, when somebody already knows a lot of things, you can refer to things they already know. Um, you might discuss a concept that they've already been told two or three times. You can leave something as read because you know that they've read it. But if somebody's completely novice, it also means that they might not actually understand the words you use. This is very common in writing. So I need to constantly keep in the back of my head, like, did they actually understand what I said? Not because they're somehow daft or something, but because if I use an arcane word, how are they supposed to know? It's up to me to find a way of them to understand. This is why my first lessons often take far too long, because I need to do so much talking to see if they even... What, what is their reference frame? What do they understand? What have they already understood? And then you might be able to start working. And then the other thing is, when you ask people... Uh, oh, they need to have this and this level before they're allowed to have lessons with me. If you do that, how are you going to ever establish what the level of, is of somebody rides at? What, what, what's, what is that going to tell me? If their horse can pee off, does that mean that they've understood anything? Well, that doesn't tell me. That might be amazing. That might be rubbish. doesn't tell me anything. Uh, similarly, if you just started a horse, you might be an amazing rider with a very, very green horse. I mean, so many permutations. What does it tell you? Why would you try to distinguish on the basis of what? Uh, in the end of the day, I just kind of look at what is in front of me and see how I can help. Uh, in, in in German, you have this lovely uh, expression, "Wamit kann ich dienen?" With what can I serve today? And I, I think that's a very important thing to to ask yourself in life in general. It's just like you do nothing ever by yourself. You're always in in some sort of cooperation with somebody, whether you like it or not. So you better be servile because that is better for everybody, including yourself. Does that uh, mentality comes, you think, from the stuff you've done with martial arts? It it sounds really obvious that it would, but it probably is not so much that. It is more to do with doing projects with people that just happen to be the same people that we did the martial arts with and having to get stuff done and running into, you know, being in the in the deep end together and just sticking together and, and having people around me that had attitudes that... They weren't necessarily always very eloquent about it, but they were people that would rely on one another, expect to rely on each other, and, and, and would, would see things through for others and had a, a, a level of understanding of responsibility. And that just rubs off. And I think that level of understanding of responsibility, I think, has a lot to do with that attitude or at least trying to find what are my responsibilities right now and what can I do to meet them. And this whole idea of how can I help? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just... I just seem to have that. I don't know. So um, you started teaching because you were told to teach as you started riding because you were told to ride. But I'm also then looking for that moment as a teacher where you felt, you know, I'm really making a difference. 
Um, there's a few particular horses where I think I made a, a very good contribution. There's a few horses that had lameness issues that we managed to work through and, and structurally improve on. Um, I've been, uh, uh, people have been advised to take lessons with me by vets that I really respect for their, for lots of things, but also for their veterinary practice. And um, as part of the revalidation program from that horse, they just sent me, sent me this person going, you need to teach this person because that horse needs you. And of course, that that that's kind of daunting, but it's also it was a real compliment. I mean, it's a huge compliment in my head, and uh, that has happened remarkably often, and and sort of worked out remarkably often. Which I'm, yeah, that 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 gives me a bit of confidence that I have something to add, something to to bring to the table, I suppose. Um, the other thing is, uh, there's one student and good friend of mine who I met in a in a a clinic in Holland and. Um, he turned up with his horse and it was really fairly problematic because he couldn't hardly stay on the horse in terms of seat, but also he couldn't steer the horse or stop it, um, more or less. It was it was really quite a dangerous situation. So he was f partly 30 centimeters above the horse because he couldn't even sit it because he was just bouncing around so much and the horse was galloping. Uh, it, it was it was messy. And he then asked if he could come to my house and he was at my place for about, I think, three months at first session. And we completely rebuilt his seat. And now he teaches in the Netherlands and he taught his own horse uh, high school movements and things like that. And the whole cooperation between those two is just so incredibly different. Uh, and it is safe, it is deliberate, the horse is enjoying it, and it is also structurally improving because there's a constant work on making a uh, progress and you can see the two of them grow together the horse and rider and this is very much not the system that I kind of got confronted with at the beginning so that's one of these really drastic changes and I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's really nice to see people find a safer more fun more reliable uh, way in, and starting to think that they can do stuff with their horse it's supposed to be fun for us and for the horse. That's why we spend all this money. And time. <laughs> yes. Because uh, the empowerment of both uh, horse and human seems to be uh, right at the core of uh, your horsework. I'm glad you say that. I, I really do try to um, to empower as far as I'm able. It, it's kind of tricky because um, if you're trying to empower people around you, you kind of need to understand them a little bit, which is not always that possible. Um, so, for instance, you, at some point, there was a, somebody who turned up in a clinic of mine, and the first thing she did is uh, set up all sorts of reasons why she was going to fail at every single exercise she wanted to try. And kind of go, why did you first build yourself down? Why paint this picture to the audience first? Why do you have to sell yourself short? And uh, I mean, I said it more eloquently at the time, just came out, but the, um, there was a little applause. But I think they meant that also as a support of her. Like you can, y you have to find your confidence, but also maybe you can you can build a situation where you can be confident um, and be competent so you can be confident so that you can enjoy things in a very different way. If you're constantly tell yourself you're not good enough. What, what, what joy is in that? But also, how is, is a horse going to trust you then? Um, and this is one of these things that I think w we got 
confronted with a lot when we did all these um, this joust and you could fly to the other side of the world and you could give a horse five minutes before a show that you've never seen before that isn't necessarily trained for the job. And you get on and you manage. H how do you do those things? And that, that comes down to riding rather than trying to train. It's not the horse's responsibility. I need to guide this horse through so that it has a, a tolerable day. And do you feel confident in that moment when they just throw this horse at you and you kind of go like, uh, how am I going to do this? There's no talk of confidence anymore. You just, you just get on with it. You, you don't ask if you can. You just kind of take a deep breath and do it. And, and this is this, you can override so much in a constructive fashion that then is in the interest of, in this case, the animal. Um, but you can do that also when you try to empower the rider. So you need to empower the rider to empower the horse. How else are you going to do it? Um, and I think there's unfortunately a lot of empowering needed and uh, it's a bit of a sad, sad state of affairs if you think about it. Very, you know, why do we always have to break everybody down? Why don't, can't we just build each other up? And yeah, and sort of into the core of what you're talking about now seems to be that word trust. That you can trust yourself to be, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Trust yourself to be able to lead. Trust yourself to, you know, be good for your horse. Trust that the horse will trust you. It's, uh, you know, it's, I, ca I can see that too because I, s I sit and watch a lot of those clinics and you see that trust is issue coming uh, along quite often. Yeah, and, and, and trust comes into a, a few different things. For instance, people being genuinely afraid. Yeah, so if you're afraid of your horse, how is the horse going to trust you? Um, now, why are you afraid? Quite often it's a lack of control, often, that really is the core to this fear. So if you give somebody control over the animal, that gives them a start of trust uh, because they don't have to be afraid anymore. And then the horse very quickly builds trust in the contrast of that attitude of the rider. And then that builds and builds on, its, on each other. Um, that's because I was very afraid when I arrived at Bukeburg, like really afraid because I just had a few accidents. And um, what they gave me was control. And that gave me my trust back. And that gave me, it got me over my fear. Um, so I, I know the feeling. It's uh, you know, there's it, it, nearly everybody runs into this at some point. I think in riding that they they are to some degree afraid, and this is uh, a really important thing to learn to deal with: is dealing with the fear and overcoming the fear, rather than trying to think you should avoid it or not have it in the first place. It's not realistic. So yeah, trust is really important. Also in other factions, can the horse trust that if you ask them an exercise, that you'll be out of the way? That you're going to make it possible. I mean, that's just such a technical part of is that is the horse going to trust that it can canter, or is it is not listening to your leg because it doesn't want to buck because you might make it buck and it knows that, so maybe it won't listen to the leg. Uh, you see this very often. A lot of things is this like why would a horse not comply, and asking those questions makes you able to analyze what am I doing wrong? And this is one thing that I, I keep thinking of dancing the moment I say that, because whenever I've done a dance class, whenever me and my partner were doing something imperfect, the teacher turns up and tells me what to do because I was doing it wrong. It was always the leader. Always the leader is doing it wrong because the leader needs to find the solutions to make the follower have a nice time. And that attitude of assuming that it's the leader's fault until proven otherwise, 
I think is very useful for a writer because it means that the fault question is not relevant. It is not relevant if it's the horse's fault or your fault. Regardless, you need to find the solution. And thereby don't you know, weigh down your brain with the question, oh, did I do something wrong? Well, it's, it's always a question you need to find a solution. So it doesn't matter. You will make mistakes. It won't go away. Find solutions. And then you make fewer mistakes anyway, but you will not reduce all the mistakes. It will not happen. And it's not even necessary to be flawless. And that's useful. That's useful to know because you won't be flawless. And uh, this is one of these things that we see very commonly these days is this whole concept of correct. And if you kind of start asking what is a correct PF and you have a discussion on the internet, you'll find that it needs to be a flawless PF before it's account as correct in everybody's book. It needs to be the perfect PF. And otherwise it's not correct. Well, that's kind of toxic because that's never, is that even realistic to ask of your horse? Is that realistic to ask of yourself? Is it, it interesting? Yes, exactly. So, so correct needs should mean good enough, and then there might be better, but there is a level of good enough, and good enough is an important line to draw. When is this good enough for government work? And that line is muddled a lot in modern um, modern discussions, and that makes people, I think, very insecure, and thereby not even anywhere remotely reach that line because they kind of hold themselves back and that's not in the interest of the horses no because that's when the heart and fun and joy is taken out of the riding I remember I sat on the clinic once and there was a horse that was going to perform the first flying change uh, and they did uh, and the first question from the rider was was it a clean flying change or a real flying change and then you kind of see those like you say when you aim for perfection you have all those kind of ambitious riders and those kind of sad horses thinking when is it's you know when is it ever going to be good enough mm-hmm. now there, there's there's specific it's an interesting that you take that example because there, there's many examples you could have taken of exercises and, and why people would be hung up on on clean flying change or the distinction between front front first and back back second for instance a lot of horses in paddocks will do flying lead changes front first and then back second even if they do it on the right or the other way around is that wrong and why well that's a very very difficult discussion to have but there is real reasons why you want to be a bit worried about how a horse transitions into canter is the horse technically momentarily in disunited is this going to be putting stress on its back now these discussions get very complicated and these discussions perhaps are more important to know where does this line lie what is good enough for government work that's where we get it again is it okay to have a front to back canter transition uh, flying lead change if it is occasional or is it just as long as the horse is balanced when it does it, that it doesn't kind of dump on its forehand or something like that. Maybe it does it cor- correctly, huh, where the hind legs go first, but it actually does this sort of straight-legged bounce where it dumps all its weight on the forehand and its mouth on the bit. And then we go, oh, that's clean. And you kind of go, well, is it clean? Is it good? Is everybody happy about this? So again, we have some elements that we're all very hung up on and other elements we ignore. And this choice of what is acceptable should come from what is acceptable for the horse. 
Now, and this is where um, testing things in practical matters is something that, uh, of course, I was uh, a lot coming in contact with in Bukuburg, but also something that comes before that is, can you do this thing? Oh, you think you can do a counter pirouette. Can you do a counter pirouette in a practical application? Uh, Piaf, same thing. You, you, you name an exercise, but can you do it whilst doing something practical, whilst you're doing something else? And that attitude, that sort of little game, really answers questions. What is necessary? Do I need to always have an influence on my horse's mouth? No, I could do all sorts of things without leaving the horse's mouth completely alone. Uh, that's not necessary for the exercise. Is it necessary for me to move my seat so the horse can move its back so it can do the exercise whilst I do something else? Yes, that is necessary. If I'm in the way, the horse is unable to do what I will ask it to do. So it, it comes down to what is the fundamental necessity rather than what is convenient for you to make the horse. Yeah, you need to make that distinction and that helps you make the priority list of what a rider really ought to do and what a rider can, well, for, for later reference. Why do you pick one or the other? And I try to argument this in the clinics as well. Like why I, well, I saw this was a bit imperfect. However, I think that's okay because it's going to be okay in three days. I try to say that explicitly so that people um, can, can kind of prioritize, but people can progress and eventually get to the place where they want to be. What my issue was with that specific um, flying change was that the effort from the horse was not being praised. <laughs> so we can have all the debates we want about yeah. front and back and what first and what yeah. not, but the horse did it uh -huh. to the best of his abilities. And the question was, was he clean or not? Not that he actually did it. I, I, oh, I, I would agree. And I just, yeah, I just, yeah, sorry. Now I just oh. thought it was really sad to see the girl on the horse doing this for the first time, and there was just no joy or no real praise in it. It was just mm -hmm. a matter of, on a scale from one to ten, what was it? And to me, that's kind of yeah. You can have that discussion afterwards, and you can work towards something mm -hmm. else. But please also treasure the moment where the horse is giving you his best or her best. I was really happy at one point to see in a lesson I did not that long ago where somebody was in the process of something complicated. I don't remember what it was, but it was a specific exercise. And they did something. And as they were doing the attempt, I kind of explained in a sentence why they were doing something wrong and the horse was following them. Their initial reaction in the horse doing the exercise wrong was to praise the horse that it did it wrong as it was told. And I was really happy to see that. Because the rider went like, ah, hmm, for future reference, I should do that differently next time. But the horse did as it was told, just as wrong as I told it to be. And uh, I think this was a, a cant. They just wanted to try to get a right lead canter. The horse gave a left lead canter because that's what he actually allowed the horse to do. So the horse was technically doing the quote-unquote wrong thing, not what the assignment was. Yet followed the rider. And the rider ad admitted to the horse in its praise that the horse had done its best. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the polar opposite, if you will, of what you describe. And yeah, if I were a spectator, then I would be more happy and and liked what I saw. 
it sounds really nice, doesn't it? And it's important to uh, to um, make sure that the horse doesn't get confused. Yeah, for sure. Yeah? It's that, a balance. That that's really important yeah. because the horse could get confused with incorrect praise. In this particular case, it wasn't a problem of my example, but um, uh, the. Um, but this brings us over to uh, awarding the try. Yes. Um, but if you award tries that confuse things, then the horse can get confused and frustrated. So it's your responsibility to know when this is empowering to the horse. Yeah, Praise is there for the horse, not to make you feel better yeah? or make the audience think you're nicer. No, it's there for the horse. Yeah, And, uh, and that means it's a communication tool to some degree. And it's it's a, a a memory like press save, you know. It's like okay, remember this one. This is the one I meant. Sometimes you need to leave something uncommented, even though the horse is really trying, just to make it clear what you were asking for. Uh, even though the horse did something really cool, sometimes just having a little giggle in the back of your <laughs> your stomach is kind of already too much, and it confuses the matter. Um, so there is a caution to be had. Praise needs to be targeted. Uh, for the sake of the horse, absolutely. There is, uh, there are so many things I could talk to you about. You know, based on what I've read, you've uh, written, and uh, what I've seen through the theory ses sessions and also the teaching. Uh, but there was one thing that really caught my attention, and that was word of honor. <laughs> That's an old phrase. Yeah, but I, um, I've just never heard it used that way before. Oh, it's it's again, it's something I was taught. So literally, and of course it comes out of an old manuscript, but uh, it's something that uh, my writing master said almost on a daily basis. You need to give the reins and word of honor. So you give first. And uh, it is very short space of time ahead of time, but it's ahead of time. So when you feel the horse already reacting to your seat and from your leg, you feel this surge of the motion coming, you already give to a very specific motion that the horse's mouth will do as a result of this motion. So you bring the, the bit to the end of the exercise, and then the, ho the horse will find a given hand at the end in his mouth because it, it, it is moved to your hand. It follows the hand. I mean, we've heard that a thousand times before, but what does that mean? Let's see that through in every single situation. It's not just for forward down, it's for everything. And thereby, word of honor is really important. And um, if you don't give open the door to the movement, the horse will never comply, and it will s become very uh, hard on the on the uh, aids very very quickly. Um, for instance, if you ride with a saber on your belt that's clanging around on the side of the horse, the horse needs to get used to that that it doesn't just walk away from this all the time. Is that a crop tapping it or is it a sword? It usually takes it like three to ten strides for the horse to have understood that this means nothing. So if I do that kind of stuff with my spurs, well, that's pointless. It, 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 they are that quick to understand, which is really quite amazing. And um, it's so easy to confuse the matter, to, to muddle and numb your inputs because you're not doing it on word of honor. And, and this comes into the whole concept of Santa Main, the Santa Jambe, all those concepts are... are and in English, that would be... Uh, the Santa Man is the giving of the hand, the, the lowering of your hand. So it's, it's giving the rein, basically. And the Santa de Jambe is more the, the, the French concept of also yielding your leg, where you, hey, you touch and then you relax your leg again so that you're not just constantly squeezing, because that's pointless. So you're using individual signals, rather, and then they, they, they relax and, and sl yeah, yeah, like slump your leg, if you will. 
And that's why it's lowering had this sound. Um, and um, making making a, a give of your leg aid a, as well as your hand aid exactly in the rhythm. Um, those things all come down from uh, the, the word of honor that the horse will, will do it for you. So you, you, you leave them to it, basically. Because that's also one of the things that you kind of um, figure out when you watch people riding in clinics like yours, that the horse really wants to do what you want to do, uh, as long as he actually understands what it is. Yes, and and funnily enough, um, I, I work, I try to really engage that that the horse becomes interested in doing the work, and 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 willing. Yeah, that's something that we we very actively pursued in Bukeburg. That was uh, again seen as a core thing for uh, applied riding art, uh, doing anything fun with your horse, that the horse wants to do it with you. So we we actively worked for that, and we had uh, behavioral techniques to make that happen and things like that. But the funny thing is that. I don't necessarily even get to talk about that many of those techniques that I was taught in Bukeborg and that they use so, because I mostly dance with the horses. I try to use that technique, which is where the horse is just reflexing and reacting to the rider, and then in hindsight go, oh, that was nice. And then you try to repeat that so often that the horse is just kind of going, well, this is fun. I don't know what it is, but it's fun. And then they only understand afterwards. And so there's two very different ways. Does the horse understand what it's about to do and then execute? Yeah, that's behavioral, like a dog learns. Or you can dance it where you might not have ever danced that figure. But if the leader is good, you just found yourself doing it and you just enjoyed it and felt effortless and it was amazing. That's when you're leading the dance. And then you can, in hindsight, remember, oh, that was a nice figure. I need to remember that one. And then maybe even use that later on uh, from what you've learned from there. So you can kind of learn in hindsight in that sense. So I, I end up in that second version much more, uh, whereas the behavioral stuff to make the horse interested and, you know, just simply pressure and release and things like that. Uh, uh, oh, if I do this, I get a cookie. Of course, it can be motivated. It can be that dumb, if that makes sense, but it is useful. And then on the other hand, you can have the horse appreciate the work itself because it, understands that it's good for it that's when you're doing a, a good performance because if you compare it to dance when you are with a, if you are a follower then uh, like a woman usually would be and the guy is leading if he's a really good leader uh, you will feel really energized and empowered by the dance and if he isn't then then you can kind of complete the dance but it doesn't really give you anything quite so that would be, in my opinion, then the same with horses. I think horses are very good followers. They're very good dancers, also uh, on distance. Um, so uh, horses spend their their day in the paddock dancing with other horses as their main form of communication. So they are very tuned into all of this. Um, so if you dance a little as a leader, then horses are very quick to 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 go like, oh yeah, I'm interested in that. Sure, finally, somebody's talking to me. Um, and this can be done from the saddle, can be done in hand, can be done in freedom. Um, and this following and leading is interesting in many ways because, like you said, there's this empowerment. The funny thing is that if you uh, traditionally learn tango, uh, Argentinian tango, uh, men often learn from men. And then you have these sessions where you just dance with this bloke and... You don't say a word. You're just dancing for three quarters of an hour. 
and the the lead is given back and forth. Nothing nothing seems to change, but the, the, just an example is given, and then you try it, and then lead me to do the same. And they don't have to say a word. You just you know there is no one leader, and it doesn't have to be one leader. You can kind of do it on comité in that sense as well. You can do it together. And there's a moment when I was doing a a big show with my my own horse and I was uh, doing this really confused fight with clubs everywhere was moving and um and I was doing this engagement with this one opponent and somebody came from behind and I couldn't see because of my helmet but my horse could see and my horse did this little sort of over overstellung and kind of went he's behind you and then we could do this 360 pirouette deal with the threat come back to what I was doing and we just did this together because my my horse gave a suggestion. My horse showed me what he could see, what I could not. And then who's leading? Well, you don't need to know. You can you can lead each other. There doesn't have to be a dominant hierarchy at all. It's not necessary. There's not the point of leading. The point of leading is getting solutions together. Ah, this is music in my ears. <laughs> I've had this discussion with so many people and with dominance and it's just so hard to accept that it's so widespread that you need punishment and dominance to make things happen with horses. Uh, and I think uh, one of these things is that dominance in horse herds is widely misreported. Yeah, It's very fluid. And uh, depending on the, the task at hand to the herd, different... Uh, horses take the lead or take the uh, start determining let's just put it that way and some horses are really good leaders and some worse you know within horses there's variants as well and and it's, it's this whole concept of what is leading is not not being the boss it is being the servant and the leader is the servant to the follower uh, my job in a in a in the milonga is to make her feel good that is my job and I might enjoy making her feel good, but that's secondary. And it, it, again, it's 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 like the word minister, you know? It means servant. <laughs> yes, they need to determine stuff, and they can get only things wrong. However, they're a servant in essence, and that, that, is, that is one of these things that you need to kind of uh, think of as a writer, I think, a lot. And even the word for uh, the, the, the old Latin word for, for knight was ministerialis. So again, minister, a servant, it's a servant. You're just a knecht, it's a servant. You're serving everything, everything and anything, anything but yourself. And and that's when writing becomes most fun, when you do it as a, as a service to everything around you, including your horse, of course. This has just been such a wonderful conversation, Anna. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> um, I... I have a, it feels like we can talk for hours and uh, I feel I really would like to invite you back because there are some topics we have touched on here that I think is uh, a new episode, to be honest. So, um, but I would like to ask you my signature question, although I think that you have kind of uh, answered many of my most important questions. And that is, what have you learned through your journey with horses that you think is vital or very important that everybody who deals with horse sh horses should know? <laughs> the second half of the question really um, is an important part of that because I've learned so many things but I think the thing that people need to gather along is you need to empower yourself to empower your horse and that is your responsibility 
and that involves technical ability to ride in order to then be able to teach the horse. Um, yes, in order to be a good dance teacher, you need to be a good dancer. So then basically you need to be in touch with yourself, body, mind and spirit. Yeah, get stuff sorted out. Yeah. And and uh, yeah. <laughs> just just get you know, and and sometimes if you if you say it like that, it sounds it sounds really deep. But it also again it is, it, it is both deep and simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is that, that if if you want to be in total balance with yourself and things like that, how feasible is that for everybody? So some people Not might a total balance, but yeah. you need to kind of you need to kind of be it remotely connected to something yeah, in yeah, order yeah, to... You need to get a grip on yourself. Yeah, yes, you, yeah I mean, yeah. you do. And, and, and um, the reason that I make a point of, of kind of latching onto that a little bit is that there's a lot of people who have a, a lot to deal with. And I want them to, to realize that they can and that that will help them deal with, you know, all every bit you deal with helps you deal with the next thing, helps you deal with the next thing. And... Um, Again, you need to empower yourself for the sake of your horse, for instance. But when you empower yourself, it might be easier to deal with some bits one at a time without having ever thinking that you need to fix yourself. That's not the point. The point is to get on with stuff. And you don't have to be perfect or flawless or, or, or I don't know, you don't have to be uh, makalos. So, like, you don't have to be uh, un undamaged. Because... You'll be damaged. Everybody's damaged. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Thank you for those words of uh, encouragement, Arne. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time for this conversation after such a long weekend also. I mean, I have to say I'm pretty amazed on the level that you teach and how many students you are able to give that kind of energy and, uh, and attention during a weekend. That's uh, well done. Well, thank you. I try my best, but I just kind of take each lesson by themselves and try to just logically to th talk through it. We start here and what do we develop from there? And then uh, it doesn't take much effort really. I just As long as people are happy with what I do, then I usually can carry on. Look forward to your next clinic. Thank you. And take care. <laughs> take care yourself. You have just heard episode 22 from Clown of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people feel free to check out my website, clownofthehorses.com, where you can read more about my podcast, find relevant videos and links, and also connect to my Facebook community. New episodes air the first Monday of the month. But if you speak Norwegian, you will find more than 100 episodes on my original podcast, Hestens Clown, the largest podcast about horses in Norway, where I publish new episodes every Monday. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, my guest, Arne Kutz, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you. <laughs>